Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Back again for another edition of Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and today, the first of a two-stage event involving Jerry Major. Now, Jerry's impact on racing in Maine is pretty remarkable. Much of the younger generation knows him as the crazy Day of Destruction guy and co-anchor at Beechridge Motor Speedway's Thursday Thunder. But Jerry's lived about six different lives within racing in the state of Maine, including being a pit steward, a flagman, he ran Oxford Plain Speedway, was part of the Oxford 250's true heydays, including one of the most iconic moments that didn't happen on the racetrack involving Busty Hart. We get to the bottom of that. This podcast is a product of Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Subscribe to us for less than $2 a month and help us preserve the history of racing in Maine. We do this with live events such as Summerfest at Wiscasset Speedway, the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame. That comes up in October. You'll see our mobile museum all throughout the state of Maine this summer. And we look forward to seeing you in person. You can also contribute to this podcast by going to patreon.com slash open trailer podcast. All the money raised goes into equipment, travel, editing, and really everything that goes into putting this podcast together. Greatly, greatly appreciate your contributions in the last couple of weeks. Jerry's got a lot to say, so let's get right to it. Open trailer podcast, stage number one. It's Jerry Major. On Open Trailer Podcast, we have uh, you know a number of different people who have had an impact on racing in Maine, whether it's, and many times it's a driver or a crew chief, but every once in a while, we, we come across someone who has had as much, if not more of a wide-ranging impact and never sat behind, well, excuse me, has sat behind the wheel of the race car. We're going to get to that a little bit later, but uh, pit steward, uh, race announcer, flagman, uh, track manager Jerry Major you have basically done it all when it comes to racing in the state of Maine welcome to Open Trailer Podcast today thank you very much Andy it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on here with you we've uh, certainly talked a lot about some of the different things and going through pictures uh, but before you even got to a racetrack I mean listening to your voice you're through and through Mainer uh, I assume that you're born and raised here in the state of Maine Hang up. Yeah. <laughs> Where were you born? I was born in uh, Lewiston. I spent my first four years in Poland and then raised uh, in West Minot. Now, how big was your family? Eleven kids. 
Wow. And where were you in that chain? I'm right in the middle. So how did you grow up? Did you grow up in a house? Uh, You said you grew up in Poland, mine it, so chances are you weren't in a downtown area. Oh, no. Out in the country. Very small house. Uh, Obviously, not all of 11 of us lived at the same time. There's quite an age difference because uh, we would not all fit in the house who was in. The house was so small. Hmm. But it it was a good life and uh, good neighborhood, kids. You know, neighbors, they're half a mile away. So what? That's no big deal. I have to ask, were you ever reprimanded for being too loud in school? Of course not. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was reprimanded more than once, but not yeah. a lot. Talk about what life was like in Minot or in Poland back in the late 40s and early 50s. Quite frankly, being from a large family, we were we were very poor, mm-hmm. and, and we did not have a that new clothes we did not have the big meals everybody has I can remember eating crackers and milk for days on end at times the things were so poor and but hey we always had some, something to eat and mm. we had we mostly heated our houses with uh, wood and uh, matter of fact we didn't have running water or indoor plumbing until after I moved out of the house did you have to take turns at the outhouse no it was a two hole it was a what? Two holes side by side. You go two at a time. Wow, you get real <laughs> honest with your brothers and sisters, huh? <laughs> yeah. Boy. Uh, fast forward through your life, you do well financially with your outside sales, and of course, you, you do well within racing. But you talk about your humble beginnings and eating crackers, drinking milk for days on end. Does that mindset ever leave you when you become more successful in life? Oh. Absolutely. I mean, you you talk about it and you think about it, but. No, I, I don't. I don't. No regrets. No, no, no. I mean, when you achieve all the success that you have, and sometimes when people grow up um, in a compromised financial situation, they always think that they that they're going to go back there. They have that fear. I did. I did not. I never no. had that. I was. I've been super aggressive all my life. I was. I was a salesman when I was a little kid, selling the seeds and salves and stuff from door to door. Was that your first job? Yep. Yep. No, my first job, actually, I ever got paid for, I think I was seven or eight years old, was leading the Paris Deers through the field for the neighbor, and he'd give me a quarter a day. Now, mind you, this is back, like, in 47, and and a quarter was big big time back then. Yeah. And he knew it was from a big family. And the ironic part, as I look back on it, and the Steers' names were Turk and Star, I'll never forget them. Wow. It, you did not have to lead Steers through a field. You could say G for the left, Wahaw to the right, giddy up and stop. And you didn't have to lead them. They knew what they was doing. But he paid me to lead them steers through. And what a great neighbor, Wesley Gilpatrick. Wow, that's amazing. So going through school, what interested you? Girls. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> uh, that's normal. Yeah, but it really it really wasn't that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we were so poor that, you know, I started working out in farms in, 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 when I was 10 or 11 years old. And by the time I was 13, I was living on farms during the summer because you wanted new clothes. You you had to go earn them, you know. And, and so I started living on farms. And by the time I was 16, I lived with the farmer year-round there for a while and one thing or another. We didn't have transportation to high school. We had to find our own transportation from Minot down into Auburn to high school. and It, it was quite a challenge in life back then. But How did you find your way to school then? 
Well, a uh, uh, good friend and neighbor, he was one of only two kids, and, and his folks provided him with a car, and so we had to pay him, you know, a dollar or two a week to ride with him. So that seems a, like a lot of steer to steer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do it that way. Yeah. 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 You know, and I, I don't know, I got my first car, an old car that my father had, 1938 Plymouth, when I was like a senior or something. Hmm. What kind of relationship did you have with your parents? I had a good relationship. Dad was a workaholic. What did he What did he do? He, when I first, as I first remember, he worked in the woods and had and was walking to work. Now this is the early fifties, I would say, and we used to walk down the West Minot, which was a mile and a half, to meet him to help carry his lunchbox and his saw and an axe back with him. He brought him home every night to sharpen them. And uh, and then he got working in Lewiston later on as things got better, and was a boiler man in the shoe factories down there. Yep. Well, that's interesting how um, your career paths kind of cross in the shoe department, because as did you go to school all the way through? Uh, did you graduate high school? Oh yes. Yeah. Yep. Did, did you have any college? I took some college courses when I I went into the tannery in nineteen December sixty one, mm-hmm. and. And shortly after that, I went in and worked on the trash truck and the labor gang and stuff. And then I got, I got the job in the stock room, and got in there. And the tannery was only built in '54, so I helped organize that place and get it going. And talked the superintendent into paying for some college courses for me. I went to half a dozen, not a big deal. How how big was the tannery? Because I'm trying to think, I'm trying to imagine how large this facility is, and someone who has zero college experience is able to organize all of it at a very young age. Um, I'm guessing we employed like 150 people, somewhere in that neighborhood, two or three shifts. We 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 tanned. 400 square feet of leather. If you can picture that laptop right there, it's about mm-hmm. a square foot. 400 of them a week. And then I spent uh, six years in the stockroom buying machine parts mm. and getting things going. They used to think they have to buy everything out of Pee Wee. We were part of a big, the largest tannery in the world back then, A.C. Lawrence Leather Company. In Lewiston? In, in South Paris. South Paris, okay. Yeah. And and they thought they had to buy everything down in Peabody, Mass. That's where the home office was. Well, I found out that we could buy stuff right out of Portland from W.L. Blake and, and Emory Steel and, and, and all these places. And I found out we, we started saving money buying them locally. And they told me I couldn't do it. Well, I managed to do it. And then, then we, we basically set up a machine shop up our way and had all these gears and stuff made locally. I saved them a lot of money. So the 1950s, uh, Oxford Plain Speedway had opened in a different configuration. And you're right in the heart of it. You're in Monet. You're in Poland. Uh, I'm sure in the Hebron area. Everybody's talking about this new place, Oxford Plain Speedway and the Main State Stock Car Racing Association. How does that word get to you? Well, I knew a bunch of people that actually raced there. I didn't go much until, oh, probably 57 or 8, and Buster Downing, who's a big part of the Vintage mm-hmm. Car Association, he and I were chums, and and we worked in Apple Orchards together, for instance, in the fall. But anyway, we, we used to go at the races a lot together. And cool. then and then I go to work at the races, and he started racing. I started working there because... I, 
when I was working at the tannery, I was working nights and weekends. I worked for two brothers up there, and we did roofing, siding, painting, and whatever handyman job you could do. Then I also worked part-time in a sheet metal shop nights and weekends and did a lot of tin knocking for the tannery. I learned that trade pretty, got pretty decent at that. Hmm. But I found out I'm working myself to death here. You know, I can't continue putting this many hours in. And I told my wife, I says, I'm going to go see Dick Bayer. There's got to be a job to Speedway I can do on Saturday nights and make a few bucks. I goes down there, and he said, we need a new pit steward. And I said, what the hell does he yeah. do? He says, he's the one that signs in the cars and line them up. I said, that's the biggest fiasco you got going here, because I've watched the guys do that, and, and it's, it's a horror show. I don't want no part of that. He says, that's why I need you to organize it. How did he know you? Hanging around the track. Okay. Yeah. Mind you, now we're up to 1966. Yeah, let's go back a little bit. When you and Buster Downing were watching races at Oxford in the 50s, who were you pulling for? Who was your first favorite driver? Bob Libby. Really? Yeah, Bob Libby, Ralph Cusack. Hmm. Uh, uh, oh, uh, Silva once in a while and stuff. But we had the local favorites, too. I mean, back in them days, you had a large contingency of drivers from the Farmington area. The Earl Jones, Nile Gage, Cassius Clark's father, mm-hmm. uh, Billy, uh, I guess that might have been before he started, but uh, Bobby Nichols and oh, just a tremendous amount from over there. Skip White and mm. yeah, all them guys. I didn't go there much when it was dirt. We went a few times. We went a few times, but then when Bob Bear had it for like one year and then he, he paved it and, and then we... Obviously, went there a few times when it was dirt because I can remember sitting in the stands one time with Buster up on the top row, and a car uh, come out of turn four. A tire came off that car, went over the stands, not far from my head, so it rolled across the street. How it got through the parking lot without hitting anything, I don't know, wow. but it went through the window of Call of the Wild across the street, the <laughs> camping place. Wow. And we was, was able to watch it go all the way. But anyway, yeah. And then it, it was paved, I believe, in 64. Bob rented it at 63. I think paved it in 64 when he bought it. Tell me about the first time that you met uh, Dick Bear and or Bob Bear. Didn't meet Bob for a while, but I, I met Dick because Dick was one of the regular guys. We, you know, we could go up and hang around the garage there some when I had time. It wasn't very much, but I always went to the races. Mm. Now I'm a regular in 64, 65 in that area. But anyway, uh, Dick was just a great guy, and Bob Bob was very demanding guy to work for or to meet one thing or the other and until you've been on the receiving end of him four or five times and get to understand what he's all about. It was, a, it was just a great humanitarian for our area and racing. What was the first thing that he reamed you for? Not getting the cars up, lined up properly. Okay, because yep. you're the pit steward. I'm the pit steward. And he comes running over to you, and he's like, here's my problem, and then you had a solution for this? Well, we went to lunch, and... Actually, that wasn't too big a deal. Hmm. I don't remember. I only got reamed by him a couple times because we we pretty much, I stood up to him, and I probably shouldn't have as much as I did, but I did. And and we got things done. 
But I remember I got scared as hell one time. I'm I'm running the Oxford two, uh, the two fifty, and first time we're ever going to pit in the infield. And I line up the pit board, had the guys come up and pick their pit number. Well, I made the mistake of putting pit number one in turn four instead of turn one, Uh-oh. so it's bass backwards. And he comes along. Dick and I are trying to decide. And Dick says, "What the hell is uh, Bob? Says what's going on?" I says, "I lined the pit board back." He says, but they knew whether they were pitting in turn one or turn four. So you tell them that's where they're going to be. Take care of it. And and I never heard another thing about it. Right. And Hey, you know, one thing we left out of the open is uh, Jerry Major, driver. Because even though you're not known for a driver, I'm looking at you, and here's a picture of you in Victory Lane in 1970 with Rodney Bernier. That's correct. So tell me about that night when you were driving at Oxford Plain Speedway. Well, ironically, Dick Bear wanted to have some. We, we talked about it, Dick and I and a couple other guys. We ought to have an official race. He says, Major, you got to go see Bob, he says, because he ain't going to listen to me. He says, he'll listen to you, though. So I get after Bob all summer. Kept working, and sure enough, he let us have an official's race. We we were going to use Charger cars, one thing or another. And as a matter of fact, when the Gary Bear was seven years old, and he dressed him all up as like Maury Dumas as a flag man, he actually flagged the race. A seven-year-old Gary Bear? Seven-year-old Gary Bear. I'm wow. sure Maury or one of the other flagmen was nearby. Oh, him. Yeah. This was when the flag stand was on the inside. So anyway, we have the race, and, and yours truly got very lucky. I drew the pole. And the only person in that race I was concerned about was Dick Bear because I know he's driven at Daytona or some of the big tracks and some of the other cars. Mm. So we get we take off, and I get a pretty good lead right off quick, and I come around the second lap, and here's Dick Bear spun out and turned two. I said, whoa, because he was the only one I was really worried about. The other guys, a flunky as far as I was concerned. I could beat them. You set up the race so you could win. Right on. So two laps later, I come around, there's Dick Bear. Spun out again. He spun out twice in the same race. In the same race. A 10-lap race, mind you. And so I stuck my hand out the window, waved to him, and there's nobody in my rearview mirror. I go on and win the race, hands down. And he was driving Steve Blood's car, who was the champion that year. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. And a very nice guy. And and uh, that's Dale Shaw's uh, father-in-law. father-in-law. Yeah. yeah, and DJ's grandfather. So anyway... We tear down Steve Blood's car that night, and Dick's trying to find out what what you guys do to this car. Why can't I race this? Why can't I? What, what the hell do you do? And they they just laughed. Nothing, nothing, nothing. After we declared Steve Blood's car legal, <laughs> Dick asked him in. Now, all right, illegal. You're the champion. What the hell did you do with that car? Because he couldn't believe that a guy with Daytona experience on a track that he owns is. Spinning out in turn number two. This stinks. Why did this happen to me? Yeah, exactly. So after we declared him legal, they says, you know, somebody mixed up them tires. I think they had the right front on the right rear, uh, left rear and versa visor. <laughs> they screwed the tires all up. And Steve says to Dick, he says, let me tell you, Richard Petty couldn't have driven that car tonight. <laughs> oh, so did you guys purposely screw him? I, I didn't have nothing to do with it. No, of course not. I did not. No, no, no. No. As it turned out, and then, then from then on, I never drew. I never drew for position. Put me on the rear I'll every time. It. Yep. Wow. And we. I was in nineteen officials races. I won ten and finished second or third seven more times, and I crashed twice. Wait a minute. When did these races stop happening? 
Oh, I think when Mike lived, well. So let's just say the 80s. 1970 and uh, 19 years later. Okay, so 89. 89. So you remember the finishes for 19 races right off the top of your head. That tells me that you've got driving and you've got racing in your blood. Racers don't forget a thing. <laughs> uh, tell me what that experience was like when you get out of the car. Because those days, you had 10,000 people in the grandstands. Absolutely. What was it like having those people cheer for you or, or hate on you? It was fun because I was the raising hell guy at the track, like I still am. Mm. And, and you know, everybody and his brother knew me. Rush Reed's car in front of me, number 60. And it, I know it's a good car because I had driven it once too. And I can't pass him. And I come up and I tapped the bumper. I thought it was Marvin Galano in there, you know, Marvin mm-hmm. from the actor. And I tapped his bumper twice. I said, I can rattle his cage. I, couldn't, I get right out beside him. I couldn't go around him. We get race gets over. I'm finished second, and I'm a little frustrated with myself that I couldn't pass Marvin. Get in there. Ross Nutton hops out of the car. Oh, man. He had driven a 100 lap of the week before. How the hell he got in the officials race, I don't know. I said, boy, you need a trophy worse than I do, I yeah. guess. I was. I was. He was a ringer. I, I was pissed and frustrated at the same yeah. time. Yep, but you finished. Old. You almost beat Russ Nutting. Almost. 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 Yeah. So uh, one of the reasons why this race even happened was certainly because of you. And uh, talking to Bob Bear, you were the guy that was going to – Bob Bear is not somebody that you can snow whatsoever. Not at all. Because So he's one of the best salesmen out there. And then they get the other best salesman out there, Jerry Major. You convince the best salesman to do something that he didn't want to do. Yeah. That, to me, is quite the talent. Yeah. Well, that was good. And, you know, and, and – Bob respected me and I him. Bob came to me many times and had me go settle agreements in the in the pits to keep himself out of it. You know, I'd mm. go talk to drivers and, you know, this has got to stop. That's got to stop. I mean, he let he let me run the pits. Was, so what would happen is is he would see something going on at his racetrack and say, "All right, well, I need to stay completely neutral on this." And Jerry Major, yeah. you go take care of it. Yeah. So what was one of those experiences that was really tedious to deal with? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I can remember one incident. He didn't ask me to take care of it, but mm-hmm. Harvey Sprague and Dick McCabe get into it on the track, and I'm out front with Dick Bear and stuff and we're in the infield, and they were beating the crap out of each other. And as the race gets over, he hollers, you guys got to do something. Dick says, come on, Major. We hop in, the, hop in a truck or something. We go out back. He goes to Harvey Sprague, and I go to Dick McCabe, and we get this all, we got them all calmed down. Pretty soon, here comes the Jeep. Bob pulls into the pits. Oh, crap. Dick says, come on, let's go lean on his door and not let him out of the Jeep. <laughs> well, <laughs> now he's already fired up, and we, we're, Dick and I lean on the door, and he is getting absolutely bull with us. Yeah. We, we let him out, and you might as well have thrown a, uh, a match at a can of gas because he got – the, the whole thing erupted again. But anyway, we got it calmed down. But I can't remember any specific right. thing, but he was, he just, he just, just, hey, take care of that major. Take care of that major. You know. So what I'm getting at is that your vocation uh, for the majority of your career was a on-the-road salesman. You you sold, um, you sold leather products to shoe companies. What was it about sales that 
A, interested you, and B, you uh, made it work so well for you? As you know, I always had an outgoing personality. What but makes a good salesperson? You got to know your customer and like them. And they have to like, if, if your customer don't like you, you probably going to sell them nothing ever. And where did you learn this? Um, just watching other really? salesmen that I guess came to me more when I was, I always sold, like I said, things when I was a kid. I worked in a film station for two and a half years, and you you know, you had to go out and kiss everybody's butt because we used to wash the windshields and check the tires and everything back in them mm. days. You, you had to be nice to people. Mm. You got to sell yourself first, and then, and then your sales will follow, and they did. So you're selling all over New England or northern New England? Well, when I was in the leather business, I had I'd had New England, New York, the Midwest, and Tennessee. So you had half the country that you half, were responsible. Yeah. You were responsible for half the country. That sounds alarming. Yeah. And I only did that for three years. I mean, that's a very tedious job. So what's your schedule like? You're you're doing this during the week, and you're still pit steward at Oxford Plains Speedway. Yeah. Um, you're still, as I understand, uh, coaching youth sports. What was your week like? I had I had three young da- uh, three daughters. Mm-hmm. Also, my wife was a Girl Scout leader for a while. A friend of mine says, "Well, I'll coach it." But I need an assistant. I says, Chris, I don't know nothing about coaching, but I'll help you. And so I'm now signed up assistant coach. Two weeks later, he transfers to Bangor. Guess who gets the team? <laughs> well, the guy that's going to Tennessee, naturally. Yeah. yeah. And I got eight-year-olds through 16-year-olds on the same team. Try to put them all in the same game at once. Mm. Later on, that equaled out. But it, it was just a way of life. I mean, I just had to be busy all the time, I guess. I don't know. Um, let's get back to the pit steward thing. How long did that last? I stayed pit steward until 80 full-time. And then it was so frustrating working with these flunkies, as I called them. <laughs> they were good guys, but, I mean, a friend of mine's got the pole and he's parked down by the concession stands. Hello, and off watching the races. If you don't want the pole go home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, then I decided I'm only going to work the big shows, the Getty Opens, the 250, stuff like that. Mm. And by now I'm uh, out around and I'm getting a few calls from other tracks to help them once in a while. Uh, Lee Speedway Red called me and I did a couple things with him and over the years I've worked at Star and Unity and Bangor and when I did the Legends Tour, because I announced every race when we went there but anyway yeah mm. uh but from when mike liberty bought the track in 1987 um jim 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 hunter from nasca executive vice president was up and and uh bob's bob and mike had talked and they says all right we're going to give the 250 of the major to run I organized the pits, the whole thing. I ran all the meetings and and the whole nine yards. In 1987? 1987. Wow. And that was a big show. Yeah. And there was a very big disruption. Are we talking about Busty? Yes. Yes. (laughs) 12-year-old me remembers Busty. Busty hat. Yeah. I'm trying to run. Tell me how this happened. I need to know. I, I didn't I had never heard of Busty Hat. Statue of Limitations is done. You can say that you organized it. No, you don't. <laughs> but I'm down in the infield running the infield track 
just before the driver's meeting, just before you get ready to act, do the actual race. Mm. And the crowd is going absolutely bazonkers up there. Yeah. What the hell is going on? Well, Bob knew what was going on. I didn't. So Bob gets on the phone, and he calls Walker upstairs. He says, you page her and get her up there, and you tell them press guys to not stop taking pictures until we get this driver's meeting done. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until after the races that I even knew who they was talking about. Right. And, and anyway. So an incredibly well-endowed young lady. Yes. Uh, ran through the pits, excuse me, through the grandstands. Grandstands. Which at the time, I mean, Oxford's grandstands are the lar- still the largest uh, spectator stands in the state of Maine, 20,000. And you filled all of those 20,000 for no, the- No, not 20,000. Was it not 20? No, 10,000 on the front stretch, 1,500 in turn one, and 5,000 in the pits. And I know that for a fact, because when the concerts came, I counted them. Because Mike Liberty always said he had 20,000, 25,000. So I no, there's 10,000 front stretch, 1,500 and 5,000. <laughs> Jerry Major with a truth bomb because I based that number simply on old race reports. I would look at um, estimated attendance, and Oxford would always have 20,000 on there. After 1987. Hmm. Hmm. There was a new owner. Yeah. That liked to exaggerate things. When I took over the tr- as president of the track, general manager, what the heck ever I was, we repaved the track that spring. And we were wondering how much degree of banking we really had. I borrowed my buddy's carpenter's four-foot level. And I still I saw this the other day. I drew a diagram of the of the track, and I went, every 10 feet or so and put this level down and three places up and down the track all the way around and I can tell you how many degrees of banking there is all the way around that track and another piece of trivia is that Oxford, Beechridge and Wiscasset are all one third mile on the inside rail Earl Pinelli Jones measured them all one day with, by himself with a walk, I think. But anyway. No, no, that don't back away from that. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Earl, Earl Pinelli Jones, number 19 out of Farmington, multi-time champion, good friend mm-hmm. of mine. He, t- he took one of the walking measuring things, yep. and he walked the, the inside rail on Oxford, Wiscasset, and Beatridge, and found them all to be one-third of a mile. Now, NASCAR figures their tracks, the width of the, the length of their tracks, 15 feet from the outside ridge, and that's when we, Oxford determined to be four-tenths of a mile instead of a third of a mile. Hmm. So was Cassett isn't any bigger than Beach Ridge and Oxford? It seems to me that it is. Not on the inside rail. You know, inside it's, rail. It's, it's more banking than the others, and, and how that's it's why built. it's faster. Ah. Yeah, yeah, and... And we had quite a time that year because oil was coming out of that track. We wound up having to get put lime on it. I, I called down to NASCAR to talk to Jim Hunter, and he says, hey, you talk to a lot of people around the country. Call them up and ask them what they do when they pave their track. For the guy out in Ohio, Sandusky Speedway, he says, get some lime. Spread lime on it. They'll soak that right up. So I called Agway in Auburn, who had lime trucks for farmers. And I says, what would it cost us to put uh, lime down all the way around our track? He says, a few tickets to 250 I said, how many would you like? <laughs> oh, half a dozen. That's all they wanted? They yeah. come up, and was, that track was white for a week or so, wow. and the problem solved that easy. It That's- was incredible.
Yeah. So, uh, Jerry, I know we're, we're skipping around a little bit, but all of it is relevant because of your experience. Uh, you were the pit steward as early as, what, 1970? 66. 66. So the Getty Opens happen. Yeah. Can you tell me about what the first Getty Open was like? Well, uh, they may have started before I started. I'm not not sure what year that started, but mm-hmm. I remember being a big part of them, lining these cars up, you know, and we had four or five different classes of cars coming in, and, and, and Dick Bear and Tony DePompo and some of these guys would sit down and decide, this guy's got to weigh 100 pounds more than the other guy or, or whatever. I mean, we had various different classes of cars within the one race, earning a hand, you know, using... What I call the modified. Well, he's a 1966 national modified champion. So it had to be 1967, my second year, when I threw him to the rear. What'd you do? Did I tell you about that? You threw Ernie Gahan to the rear? I did. Bear was wanting to know why I had to keep coming out into turn three to reline the cars coming on the track. And I because they're not lining up properly. They don't come. He, he says, well, you got to find a way to do it. And I said, just, well, my choice, I'd throw him to the rear. And he's do it. <laughs> and I says, what? You want me to throw them to the rear? He says, if they don't line up, throw them to the rear. Very next weekend, we had a Getty open. This car doesn't line up. I said, called and called and called. He don't come. I said, okay, you're running the rear. Somebody comes running up and says, you can't run. Throw him to the rear. He's the national championship. I said, who is it? He says, Ernie Gahan. I said, I don't give a shit who it is. He knows enough to right. race. Yeah. He's going to the rear. He went to the rear, qualified, never had a problem with the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that was interesting. Uh, so Getty Opens precede the Oxford 250. Yeah. So you were there when they decided they were going to run this Oxford 200. What was that buzz like? Well, that, that was a lot of buzz. And and I still say friends with the winner of that, Joey Carafas. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, now we're, now we're getting things organized to really bring instead of four classes of cars to kind of get it to one and one thing or another. The, the idea was we want one big race instead of having a, kind of a hodgepodge of all these all these cars. As I understand it, yes. And mm-hmm. and, and Bob was ready to put up some big, I think we put $20,000 for the first one. Where does he get this money? Oh, the stands. Yeah. I mean, we were putting people in the stands back in the day. What well, now? Uh, I don't remember what year the first 250 was off the top of my head. Well, the 200 was 74. 74, okay. Here's here's where he got a lot of his money. In 1970, he made the decision to give away 16 brand-new cars, Plymouth Dusters he bought from Bessie Motors. Now, when you get a chance to win a car, you're one in 10, 11, 12,000 people. Your chances are pretty good. Uh, uh, friends of mine, Mechanic Falls, one one ran it for twenty some years. But wow. anyway, we gave away ten cars, one car a week f- for ten weeks. Now, if you come to the races for ten weeks in a row, oh, gee, th- this might be good. I might be hooked on this, you know. Yeah. And and from then on, we had a pretty full stand for years. I mean, seven or eight thousand every night was was not uncommon at all. It was not uncommon. And ironically, I, I'll digress a little bit more because the last car we're getting ready to give away, nobody comes. Nobody comes. And that's 
Well, that's how I get doing some announcing out front. We didn't talk about that yet, did we? No, let's talk about that because I know where I'm going to go with this Oxford question, but keep on because going. Because we're out front and we're getting ready to give away this car and we get Dick had made this barrel with the tickets in it. You know, you got to have a ticket. And Bob says, we ought to interview this guy or this person, whoever wins. He says, we got a microphone. Dick says, yeah, we got a long extension card up there. Well, where the hell do you plug it in? Out in the middle, by the middle of where the figure eight used mm. to be. Oh, who the hell are we going to get to do it? And Dick, uh, Bob looks over at the dick and he's get Major to do it. He's got a big mouth. And so, and <laughs> so that, you were anointed. Yeah. And that, and that was how I got started doing any announcing out in front of the crowd. When they were giving away the 10th of the 10th car. So the last one, we call the number and nobody shows up. Nobody shows up. I said, okay, we, we're huddling Dick and I and Bob and I don't know who else, probably Tony DePombo, whatever. And we says, okay, you got two minutes. And if you ain't here in two minutes, we're drawing another number. All the ones, almost the two minutes almost up, and the guy shows up and he says, hey, I got the winning number right here. He says, but put the microphones away, put the cameras away, please. So, What's going on? He comes yeah. down and talks to us. He's well, I got the winning number right here, but I'm here with a lady that isn't my wife, <laughs> and she's married too. I don't want you to use my name, and I don't want any pictures in the paper. So we convinced whoever was taking the photos, it could have been Wayne um, Flanders or whatever, to just hit the hit the thing and make the flash go off like he was taking the picture. Okay. And I gave him a fictitious name. And now he says, oh, I don't want the money either. I mean, the car. He says, I don't know what the hell to do. He right. says, can I have money instead? And Bob says, I'll give you $1,600. That's what the car has cost. So, oh, the guy's tickled to death. Yeah. And whoops, now he and his girlfriend each gave $800 a piece. They can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It was it was hilarious. Because you just can't show up with a brand new car, <laughs> so, right, in your driveway. That's yeah. The wife's going to ask a question about that. Oh, it was so funny. It oh, was so man. funny. So uh, how did that interview? you go <laughs> did you went, interview that guy just like all the rest you know right. he just used a fictitious name and and the whole thing you know we didn't spend a lot you know we spent right. 15 20 seconds on it you know but still don't want to delay the races so the oxford 250 comes around and uh joey Carafis wins the first one what do you remember about that day the very first oxford 200 i guess at this point actually not a lot i mean you know i know i was very very busy boy because mm. how many cars showed up that day i couldn't tell you but as as the 250 got going i used to start a pool every year on how many cars would show up and and people would i think we put five dollars a piece in the hat and guess who won it the most bob bear oh wow are you kidding me that's some pete rose right there yeah yeah i said wait a minute you get the entry she said, i ain't got no friggin' entry you yeah. goddamn fool yeah. you know but he won it three or four times but we did you know we were well up over a hundred two or three years in a row of entries for this 36 race cars hmm. uh 36 field cars one year we started 48 cars i remember and that was one of the smoothest races we ever had with 48 of them out there. I remember being there and my dad, uh, being probably my age at this point, just saying, yeah, this is never going to happen. Boy, are they stupid. And I think like Crouch was at the back or something because he had a promoter's option, had a hard time coming through. But um, do you know whose idea it was to run heat races 
for this because the legend of the 250 is the qualifying more than the actual 250 itself sometimes. Oh, absolutely. But we ran heat races for the Gettys, too. I mean, mm-hmm. heat races was a way of life at Oxford Plains Speedway from the get-go. Did they ever do just straight NASCAR time trials, or have they always done I think, heats? I think we did it once or twice, and we may have lined up the heats by the by the time by trials. The time trials. I, I don't remember that exactly. I can't remember. I want to say they tried it and then everybody revolted and then they just went back to heat races. But now, maybe they just never did anyway. Now you just mentioned a name that brings something to mind, Robbie Crouch. Mm-hmm. We got one of the big opens going. I don't think it was a two fifty. Robbie Crouch is leading the race. I'm in turn four, relining the cars. When Robbie Crouch leading the race spins out between three and four. The field goes on by. I goes down on the track and stand behind Robbie Crouch and go to start reline the cars when they come around. Dave Dion's leading. Now, if these guys go by Robbie Crouch, he's down a lap. All the ones he fires, that car gets fired up. He pinwheeled it. When he did, he hit me, knocked me up in the air. I did a flip and come down on the asphalt. Ooh. This is the first race that we ever had radios that I ever had a radio out there in contact with the towers. Used to be over the microphones, but now I get them on radio. I I lost my headset, and I didn't get hurt, thank God, and I get up and ran out in the middle of the track to grab my headset, otherwise Dave Dion's gonna run over it and put it put it back on. I had some asphalt in my belt and in my elbow, and other than that, I didn't get hurt. Keep on trucking. And Robbie Crouch comes back to the next race, and he says, by the way, i got to send you a bill for that rear quarter. I said, don't worry about it. I'll take it out of my settlement. <laughs> <laughs> I made him nervous, I'm sure. Listen, Jerry, um, one thing that I left out of the whole Oxford story, uh, do you remember when the Winston Cup races came to Oxford in the 66? the same yeah. year I went to work there. So what was that Bobby Allison day like? It was very interesting. I don't know if it was 66 or 67, but he came one time because uh, it was a really big thing to have Richard Petty and, and these guys coming to Oxford, Maine. Mm. You kidding me? I mean, we would listen to him on the radio, and we knew some stories and stuff. But Bobby Elson blew an engine wherever he raced the night before. He went up to Harold's Motor, what is now Goodwin's, up in South Par- in Oxford, and they replaced him. They worked pretty all night. Two or three of my buddies worked with him and they still talk about it today mm. but anyway uh no that's cool that's one of the things i had in common with bobby and 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 i still call bobby once or twice a year to talk to him because we became friends yeah i was gonna say there's a picture of you interviewing bobby from probably the late 80s in that iconic red blazer that you used to wear i i want to say that was uh 91 and and Benny Parsons was there too, and the, and we were on radio that year. I think it's the only year that the race was ever put on radio, and the race, we can't start the race until nine, uh, seven o'clock at night because that's when it's scheduled for the radio. At five thirty, everything that we're all lined up for the feature and everything, but we can't start because we can't. We're on national radio, and so. Between Bobby Allison and Benny Parsons, we went down the track, and I and Walker was with me some too. But we did a bunch of interviews and let the crowd ask questions, and and just killed an hour, an hour and a half. That's what happened. Yes, I remember being there in the stands that day, and they would run 
like like pace laps of the maybe it was a Pontiac sponsorship or something. Not like sure all, it was. all the sponsors were out there. And we were just like, let's go, let's go, and the crowd was getting riled up. Oh. So you got okay. So now we know the math: ten thousand, five thousand over there, fifteen hundred over there. You have all these people. You have thousands of people, and it's your job, you and Bobby Walker, to entertain a unruly crowd. How do you do this? Uh, Benny Parsons was the man. Benny and I stood down there, I don't know, half, three quarters of an hour, fielding questions for him mm. and letting him answer them. And say, you talk about a great opportunity for Jerry Major. Mm. I mean, it was it was really something. But and and you know, we got a lot of booze without a doubt. Oh no, yeah, and it had nothing to do with you. No, it was just like we need to go to work tomorrow. Yeah, and we're used to this race starting a lot earlier than it's starting tonight. And there's no reason why they should why they're not racing right now. You know, I had to keep explaining to him because I actually was involved. In, it had to have been ninety one because I had. I had to be. Uh, I was involved in selling the radio ad too. Mm. Make them understand that we can't start because the broadcast don't start till seven o'clock. You can't be halfway through the race for the race. The broadcast starts. People in Iowa want to hear the first lap. Bingo. But you know there was a lot of good first there when Don Beedman won. I don't know what year it was without stopping for gas. Seventy-seven, maybe. Oh, you remember that, huh? I think yeah. so. But the year before that was the Ralph Nason, uh, de- not debacle, but controversy. Ralph Nason and uh, Butch Lindley. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? And, and, and if so, what is your take on it? Not really. So the the controversy, and this has been told in other editions of this podcast, was Ralph Nason led all these laps and Butch Lindley. Lee pitted and Ralph Nason was going to lap him but yes. then they said he wasn't lapped and then it, the case went to Daytona and everybody in Maine so far uh, that we've talked to says Ralph Nason won that race even though yeah. the record book shows that Butch Lindley won that race yeah. and yeah. so you don't remember much of that day. Not, I don't dwell on stuff like that. Well not dwell really. but I mean you yeah. still can but, remember. But I don't really remember now that you refresh my memory yes mm-hmm. it brings back a lot of memories but uh, if you'd ask me about about that, I, I wouldn't have known. No, I well, wouldn't remember that. What was the coolest part of the first, say, 15, 20 years of the Oxford 250? What's one memory that jumps out at you? Like, like we're here. I can't believe this is happening in my community. Because, again, you grew up 15 minutes down the road. Yeah. You're a local boy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I Well, I... The big thing, of course, was when the when the Bobby Allisons and the Petties and those guys came up for those three races. Mm. And then down the road was when uh, I think one of the Morgan Shepard was one of the first guys to come up the race to two fifty. The Butch Lindleys and the Tommy Ellises and 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 these guys showing up from down south. Tommy Jeff Bodine. Hughes, Tommy Houston. Well, he mm. was from the north. Well, Shimong, yeah. Yeah, and and he was not a popular man at Oxford Plain Speedway. Ask Dick McCabe. Well, bringing up another iconic 250 moment, um, eventually, I mean, I hope to have Dick McCabe on this podcast himself so he can explain it. I mean, we've all heard the story from different points of view, but the 1984 Oxford 250, Dick McCabe, Jeff Bodine, late in the going, there's a spin, the crowd erupts. What do you remember about that moment? Well, I remember I don't remember the exact first thing happening, but they get into it somewhere because I, I'm so involved in the rest of the race, and I guess I didn't. Mm. But I do remember specifically when McCabe, I mean, just flat-ass drove him out of turn two and put him in the rear stretch wall. And afterwards, he says, if I ain't going to win this race, that son of a bitch ain't either. <laughs> 
And that was yeah. kind of his quote, as I recall. And they were radioing to other teams. Yeah. He, he was radioing to Dick Lines, who was crewing for Robbie Crouch. And like, here's the lap that's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. Stay out of the way so you're not involved. Yeah. But, I mean, and, and if, if Dick hadn't taken him out, Jeff would have won it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. Mike Rowe won that year. Yeah. With that V6 car. You remember this stuff a lot better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it made such an impression on me. That was the very first time that I was at the 250. So, as, you know, nine year old me, uh, hearing that little V6 24 car, oh, yeah. I only knew that it was different because everybody else was telling me that it was different. Yeah. All my, you know, my dad, my dad's friends were like, look at that little car, you know? And it obviously the V6s were starting to come in. Mike yes. Rowe went in his first 250. 1982 was probably my biggest moment with the Oxford 250. My friend down at Betsy's Country Store, Butch, had got a home camera thing. It's a pretty good sized thing back in them days. Yeah. And he got like a six foot card on that. I went around and I interviewed literally every driver that was in the 250 that day. I had it on video and I've transferred it to a thing. And I got some in my opinion, great interviews with Butch Lindley. And I'm sitting on the back of a truck with Butch Lindley and Jeff Bodine, for instance, and, wow. and I got pictures of this. And I says to Butch, so where'd you, did you race last night? Yeah, I raced at Hickory. How'd you do, Butch? We won. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just as dry as a popcorn, you know what. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, that... That is my most memorable year because I can go back on the tapes and watch them, and and I just love it. Now in stage number two, more truth bombs from Jerry. But we had the Grateful Dead and the and the Monsters of Rock. Monsters of Rock, two weekends in a row, really disrupted our town. Yeah. Can but you anyway. tell me about those days? Were you how how big of a part of that were you? I I was part of the crowd that helped shut him down. I had to believe. You we, shut down the Grateful Dead? Uh, I think I can tell the story now. Sure. That's next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. My name's Andy Austin. Talk to you next time.